Perfect. All oh. right, welcome back. Welcome back to Evil Thespian. Uh, we are here with playwrights, uh, Patrick Vermillion. I suppose um, you can also consider Patrick my neighbor uh, since we're in the same city. Um, Patrick, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, Maddie. I am of a course. huge fan, longtime fan of <laughs> Evil Thespian, actually. Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh, that's so, oh, that's just like makes me so happy to hear. I, um, yeah, I never really uh, can kind of like gauge, like, I mean, Spotify only tells me so much about the listeners. So I'm right. always like down to like talk to the listeners and like, and I just um, genuinely like am so interested in. Uh, theater uh, theater practitioners and like theater communities across the board so um yeah super excited just thank you so much for like your openness to do this and of course I'm yeah. super excited so we established you've you've been in Chicago for how many years uh well I've been I moved to Evanston in 2018 and mm -hmm. I know it's wrong to say that I've been in Chicago for that long so I moved to Chicago itself in 2020 so about three years five years in the in the whole Chicago land so cool. right yeah excellent um and where were you before uh I was in Bushwick actually cool yeah. wow, wow and what kind of was the impetus to make the relocation um, I went to the Northwestern MFA, so that's why I All moved right. there initially. Yeah. Hell yeah. Northwestern, really great theater school. <laughs> I'm glad that's the reputation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, so did you go to um, Northwestern like for writing specifically or? Yeah, I was um, working uh, full-time in New York and I kind of applied I guess actually that's not true I got laid off pretty spectacularly and then I was like well I can I'm looking for another job and I'll also apply to grad school and uh, yeah. I got into some schools in New York but then Northwestern had a really compelling pitch and I mm -hmm. came out here and uh, we stayed ever since we really liked it awesome what a I guess from the beginning, I guess what uh, piqued your interest initially and what originally got you into playwriting? Um, I was not into playwriting until mm -hmm. college because in mm -hmm. high school, I was really scared of the theater kids. Um, I, they were, it's not that there was anything wrong with them. It was like me, I was like shy and uh, <laughs> They were really talented and they would sing in the hallways and I knew I wasn't going to be that person. It's pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty frightening. <laughs> um, so I actually didn't really have any interests until in my undergrad, your first year, you have to do a, like a first year studies and it's kind of randomly chosen. You get a choice of four and mine ended up being playwriting and uh, I'd always like be a creative person but I was a really bad writer mm -hmm. and uh writing dialogue in a play just felt really easy and it felt really nice and it, it's kind of a I feel like it's kind of a really good way to be lazy because if you write screenplays like yeah if you write screenplays you have to like describe the room you have to describe every shot 
um, and this was my thinking at the time. In plays, you could just be like, "There's two people in a room. There's a box in the room. They, you know, mm-hmm. they throw the box at each other and they yell at each other." And that was, mm-hmm. um, it was easy enough for me to be able to, to attach myself to it. Mm-hmm. I like that thought that uh, you can be like lazy with playwriting because to me, I always. I guess, yeah, when you think about it, it's very, like, writing dialogue is very simple because we do it every single day. Um, uh, what what makes you feel like you were a bad writer, like, before? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I think I was, like, I really always wanted to be a writer, like, really badly. Mm-hmm. And I, it was, like, one of those things where, like, I would write and I'd be, like, this is going to be, like, I... I would think about it all day and then I'd write it down and I would like mm-hmm. read it. And I'd be like, this is so bad. It <laughs> just comes out like really pretentious or really like angsty and really silly. And I knew that because I had, there's a, this girl in my uh, high school class who like I had a huge crush on because she had this amazing sense of writing. And she like wrote these like extremely beautiful detailed stories and they're like, I still remember some of them. And like, she would like describe like the water dripping off a tomato slice on a sandwich. And then I would be like, okay, I can do that. And I would go home and try and do it. It would just come out all wrong and messed up. It's like, I don't know if you ever watched SpongeBob, but like, oh, yeah. That episode where he creates that like messed up doodle version of himself. Mm-hmm. That's what my <laughs> writing felt like in compared to hers. Yeah. So that's, and that's writing dialogue feels like more kind of e- like easy and like seamless and natural. Yeah, I think the most pretentious way I could put it with at the risk of sounding that way is like <laughs> in theater, we're all because just because of how it's like live and that there's no way to anticipate exactly what's going to happen in any given moment. We're mm-hmm. kind of just inevitably going to have some sort of ugliness or some sort of like since sense that this is like not perfect that it's mm-hmm. like kind of false and I think it was easier for me because I could embrace that and I kind of liked how ugly it could be mm-hmm. like I really like uh or maybe this is a good example I saw like death of a salesman on Broadway when I was in I think high school and it was like Andrew Garfield and Philip Seymour Hoffman and it was it was great. It was a good play, obviously. But uh, there's this part in the play that Andrew Garfield accidentally like was speaking too loud, and he had a huge loogie that just fell mm-hmm. out of his mouth, and the whole audience like screamed. And wow. I think, <laughs> and I was like, that kind of felt like weirdly the most interesting part of it, and that was like mm-hmm. maybe why I felt more attached to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like the kind of almost precarity of like the the live the element that there's like a there's stakes even outside of the stakes within the convention of the story kind of yeah wow so um how has your playwriting journey been since college like how has that evolved what do you usually write about um, in terms of like, or I guess what kind of characters are you like really interested in um, writing about? Sure. Uh, thanks for asking that. 
I've been trying to articulate it for so long and I was like, I should kind of think of a way to articulate it before I go on here, just in case you ask that. So I'm glad you did because <laughs> I prepared it. <laughs> I love that. Oh, perfect. <laughs> um, so I think about it a lot and I think ultimately what I've come down to like reviewing everything is that I really like the concept of like dissonance or this idea that like everybody in the country right now is kind of living in their own version of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just made from not just social media, but just the way we interact with the world and how we're kind mm -hmm. of increasingly isolated, we're increasingly segmented and we're less likely to deal with people outside of our own viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to think that the plays I write are kind of about the two people in two separate realities colliding and having to contend with the idea that there's someone who has a different worldview from themselves, mm -hmm. what that means and whether like which philosophy will win or if the philosophies are meant to combat at all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, think, I yeah. think that's the best way to surmise it as far as I can tell. Yeah, no, I, I like that uh, how, I, I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly, like isolation is such a huge theme, uh, especially with young people. Um, and is and what is, I think is interesting to me when it comes to character development and just in, in, in people's, when, when I like walk through the world and I meet <laughs> so many different people, it's very interesting how we can all be experiencing um, the same uh, isolation from society, uh, but people react uh, different uh, based on their, you know, uh, version of reality that they're living in and the ways they think from, you know, just how, how people are people like I know. So <laughs> I know how I react and how I, um, you know, approach isolation or try to combat isolation. And my version of experiencing and like behaving to isolation uh, is different from someone else. And I think, yeah, the, it is really interesting. Um, I did, I really like the the conflict. The conflicts between that is like very, very exciting. Because <laughs> um, I think yeah. most people like have the same idea. Like, yeah, we're really isolated, and yet. Um, yeah, you, we like look at each other and I'm like, wow, this person is uh, responding to isolation in, like this crazy way. That's definitely not how I would do it, <laughs> you know. Um, that's, I mean, that's what it, it's it's uh, so it's it's excites me about drama. Um, mm -hmm. I guess is just uh, fighting is like the best is the best part. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think I remember I was listening to some episode of yours a while ago where you mentioned how you prefer when people die or you like when people die in a show mm -hmm. I love it, it when people die <laughs> yes yeah. do you ever when you write do you ever kind of think about whether I mean have you written um someone died has anyone died in your shows or <laughs> um, in your writing yeah I think someone in all the full lengths I've written at least one person dies which mm -hmm. yeah Yes, actually, yes. That's crazy. Yeah. Sorry. 
that's weird that's weird no, to think about. i think yeah. it's it's good to sort of like lead with the you know thought process that every character you write has like you know meditating on their own mortality um and you know I can sometimes like when I imagine a character in my mind it's so abstracted that um it doesn't even come to uh my my imagination that I that they could die um but I think uh you know having some elements of um you know death it's sort of like the ultimate uh kind of you know, stake, um, it just like makes everything a lot more potent uh, in terms of like the the themes and it makes everything like much more kind of, at least for an audience member, it, it makes you think about how like so much is very ephemeral and temporary. Because um, like the characters I really identify with so much in like TV shows and books and everything, um, it seems like if they don't die in the in the show, mm-hmm. um, they're always with me, and I'm just I have uh, access to them all the time. And when characters die, it just makes me think about like, actually, we don't have access to life all the time when we want it. I mean, it would just require us to be alive, and like when we're dead, we can't do that. So, um, yeah, I guess what um what kind of like themes do you usually like gravitate towards um or is like maybe a theme something you don't really lead with what would you say like is your process uh, in Um, writing yeah well first I just wanted to say that the what you just said about the characters I I think is like really astute especially (laughs) now where like every care like everybody keeps coming back for reboots and like characters mm-hmm. we've left behind are now like still here with us like i've been watching frazier which came back mm-hmm. and it's yeah. really uncanny to see him uh it is weird because yeah. uh, i think i i honestly like there's something relieving about or it's like actually a healthy reminder for everybody to get excited about a reboot and then watch it and then realize you can't actually replicate <laughs> the same uh like feel the same feeling that Ooh. once you know from, from something that actually you know just was in the past like you can't really replicate uh, the same kind of like feeling that you know comes and goes and like can't really resurface no matter how much no matter how hard you try um yeah I I agree I I felt I feel that way um you know about like there's so many plays I really like and I always wonder like you you couldn't possibly like replicate it or make a sequel or something because it just wouldn't be the same yeah it's like kind of like sequels you know like you can't really um it doesn't hit the same it's it's just so it's just going to be different um yeah yeah it's kind of like a weird thing to do even to make a sequel or to bring back a character because you are like kind of torturing that person by like Mm -hmm. being like oh you resolved this one conflict and now we're going to put you through it again and again because we need you in our lives Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, like yeah. what? Yeah, it kind of robs the audience from experiencing like a character arc. Uh, with, totally. Yeah, every you know, every, even when I when I watch reality TV sometimes, and I think like, oh, the editors did a really good job of giving this one character a character arc with the editing, because now this one character is edited in a way where they're actually much more flattering. Uh, they're edited in a much more flattering way because in the beginning, maybe they were like the um, villain of the show or something. And they have like a nice character arc. And um, yeah, I think when, yeah, some, some writing I think nowadays feels so, um, like a con just a constant stream of being on the same plane where it just doesn't feel like where I'm like, where is this going? <laughs> um, I don't know if you have you okay, have you ever seen the bear? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean we're, you know, Chicago, we gotta watch the bear, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, I have to watch a bear. <laughs> now something about the writing in that show, I just like maybe it's me but sometimes I listen to like the writing in that show I'm like where is this going I, I actually don't know what's happening in that <laughs> show and I've watched it before in it's like totality I'm like what is happening um but that just yeah. might be like a tonal thing but I'm, no, I'm not sure <laughs> I think you're right and it's really it's hard to speak out about not being totally on board with the bear right now because the bear is super hot <laughs> And yeah, yeah. I'll shout out to the bear. We love totally. the bear. Yeah, I just we, don't know what's going on in the show. <laughs> good Chicago uh, mm -hmm. representation. Absolutely, um, yes. But actually, I think you really, really hit the nail on the head for the problems I have with it. And this is, you know, personal preference. And every, like, I think it deserves all the accolades. But I watched the first episode of the second season. And the whole episode, they're deciding if they're going to keep doing the thing they decided at the end of the first season, which was mm -hmm. to open the restaurant. Mm -hmm. There's no actual new element being introduced or new mm -hmm. stakes or any trauma of any kind, any conflict. Mm -hmm. And that that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of what you're saying. It feels like it is kind of extending itself beyond mm -hmm. like the dramatic Aristotelian nature of like what drama should be yes yeah I I felt this way about um a recent episode of uh, I think it was honestly like the real housewives or something where oh. it was just so strictly expositional like every mm -hmm. episode um was so much of a reiteration of the exposition like here are the characters, this is the setting, this is who these people are. And uh, it's kind of just like a, a regurgitation of the same thing. I was, and I was wondering actually, cause I wonder if anyone feels this way um, because sometimes when I think of ideas, I feel very intimidated cause on some level, which I'm sure this isn't true. Uh, like I feel on some level, uh, intellectually that this can't be true but sometimes I feel like where did did some like are, are all the ideas uh already used or <laughs> like I and maybe this could be a cultural uh like 
problem of just like being so self-aware and having so much access to so much information and so many ideas at one time. But I was wondering if you struggle with the same thing, like being very intimidated uh, about ideas in general, like writing about ideas, because you're thinking like, didn't someone already say the same thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I I feel like that was like a huge part of like, maybe the 2010s or maybe like my 20s where like you would pitch an idea to your friend and they'd be like oh isn't that just this movie and that alone would get would like discourage me enough that I like would just throw it out mm -hmm. but then in retrospect I'm like well it wouldn't have been that movie because I'm not that person I'm not that director right we're in a different exactly. time um, but I do think you are bringing up something like pretty profound just in terms of like culturally we are, I wouldn't say this is for lack of talent or lack of people who are really good writers. It does feel like maybe through the limits of the systems we've developed through like what we write or what we watch, um, we kind of end up uh, rewarding a similar slate of plots and ideas and themes mm -hmm. um, and, and it all comes back to like the reboot thing right where, mm -hmm. where it's like is it Kelsey Grammer in a new sitcom no he's just going to do Frasier mm -hmm. again because that's easier for us to swallow mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. what um, so what a kind of because I think every writer and like playwrights um, kind of uh, leads with what they feel like audiences, you know, maybe don't have access to right now, or like they haven't seen before. What do you feel like you want to bring to an audience? In, and maybe maybe you don't think about this while while you write, which is fine too. But um, what do you feel like, um, like what do you want to bring uh, to audiences when you're like writing? Totally. Um, yeah, actually, this is where, like, I, I'm not sure how much, like, theater you've seen in our fair city of Chicago this past year. But... Oh, honestly, I've been pretty, I've been, uh, oh, fair, yeah? this past year uh, has been a little rocky for me. I've been a shut-in <laughs> for totally. the most part, yeah. but um, I've been, like, in and around um, and gotta get out there when I can uh gotcha. but you know I'm like I'm peripherally familiar kind of with um the small pockets of community uh of theater communities here definitely but yeah fill me in <laughs> no no this is um I think maybe just responding to what you were your prompt it feels like when I see like a show in Chicago and this is not does not apply to every theater, but I think a lot of times I'll go to a show and that show will come packaged kind of with a um like a metatextual, like this is the lesson, this is the morality, this is mm -hmm. like what this this is why we're doing this play, why we're doing it now, and why what you need to take away from it as an audience. And I think there's definitely value in that. But I kind of prefer like a more ambiguous and maybe more like conflicting 
type of theater where you leave and you genuinely don't know who, like, maybe there's a character you walk in that you thought you were going to identify with, and then by the end, that character has alienated you, and the character that you thought you would never attach yourself to has become more sympathetic. I would mm -hmm. like to create work that's conflicting in that way, like conflicting not just within like on the stage, but like within mm -hmm. you as a person reading or watching it. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite thing, I got like this rejection letter recently uh, and the the rejection letter was like, hey, we, we aren't gonna take your play, um, but I just want you to know that like, we spent the afternoon arguing about what it was. Um, Perfect. And I was like, that is pretty much- I Your mean, work here is done. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I like that's that. a really good sign. Yeah, it was nice. I um yeah. yeah, I think uh yeah, I I agree with you. There's a lot of overemphasis on uh you know, what is what is this about? Like what is what is this about? To me, theater is like, well, what are these characters about? You know, like what is going on in terms of like why are they doing what they're doing to get and what they want and like where where does like this, this a certain bad behavior come from um and uh yeah I think it's just much more entertaining to like see people on their like worst day on their worst behavior uh and I think it, it's I mean this is like very like random like Camille Paglia actually said this about real the real housewives uh oh, nice. how it's like one of the best uh representations of drama like there I mean I would say well so this is also funny about like being meta like mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like reality tv shows where you're supposed to see people kind of candid on their worst behavior just pure emotions um, and now when you watch reality TV, there's a lot of mentioning of the show on the show. Mm. And it's kind of like the, it's kind of really not the um, friction that I come to a reality show for. I come to the reality show for those like very raw interpersonal fights that don't have anything to do about the fact that we're on a show. Um, you know, it's kind of like the same thing you're describing, like, what is this, this story is about this theme and it's a uh, show that is this thing where it's like, I, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. It's, there's this phenomenon that, that concept sort of upstages and like robs us a little bit from that, those very rich conversations about like the depth of character. Um, but I think that, I think that's almost sadly I think that's almost like very natural um which is why theater is important because um yeah we we are in like an isolated place where we kind of only see our peers as like a two-dimension very two-dimensional almost um I guess yeah what is it I mean are what are some plays that like have that you would say like made a like very large uh, impact on you oh sure um well I do have some I just wanted to second your reality oh, tv yeah. uh mention because uh yeah I mean I I actually did not watch a lot of reality tv until I got this job where I was editing a podcast for people magazine and they have to Interesting. like 
they had to do like recaps for reality TV. So I was like finding mm-hmm. myself watching like season seven, episode eight of like Real Housewives, Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. just to find the recap. Mm-hmm. And I really liked like what you're saying on those shows and the shows themselves, they're like, oh, we're putting on this and it's like all very like presented. But mm-hmm. then there's there's even there's even another layer where like the, we all have this like awareness of the fact that they act differently when they're not on camera. Mm-hmm. And we know that from like the way we've been reported on and like the tabloids and such. Mm-hmm. I always find that like, so interesting like uh i had a friend who has a blog or she did have a blog when it was uh keeping up with the kardashians Mm -hmm. and she would just like um mark all the continuity errors in the show as a way of pointing out the artifice (laughs) perfect how everything is constructed yeah Um, i would be interested to like know if like the um the rate of continuity errors on reality shows has increased over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's interesting because I think depending on which region, like which <laughs> which uh, you know, Salt Lake City, Beverly Hills, I think the mention of uh, the show that the fact that they're on the show in the conflicts can vary sometimes. I've just noticed it more in this recent season of Real Housewives where they'll refer to the fact that, oh, we said this on camera and we said that on camera. Mm -hmm. And to me in the earlier seasons, nobody would ever say that on the reunion or during filming. And I feel like earlier, uh, like the consciousness towards like reality shows even though you knew on some level intellectually that they were performing a little bit uh, for the show, um, there's still like an element of like suspending your disbelief as if you were watching like a serial drama and you were just kind of locked in thinking like, oh, this I'm like a fly on the wall. And over the years, there's been so much like hyper self-awareness in reality TV characters. Um, and it's... A kind of almost a it's a, just a to me it's like a turnoff because you already have access to those conflicts on social media and stuff and I'm really I'm mostly interested to like know like I want to hear like the fights about like who embezzled money and who found reveal it's like revealing something like in a play like you're saying like when the characters reveal that somebody's like going to die or like everybody's finding out in that moment, including the audience. And um, it's, yeah, it's like this very strange, like hyper, hyper self-awareness you see on reality TV and then also like scripted television as well. Um, It's a little, yeah, it's kind of, it's weird because scripted television now, they're almost um, is like this strange uh, hyper like self-awareness in in dialogue now that's kind of saying yeah we're we're characters but you know we're on it's it's a show (laughs) you know i don't know it's strange i don't know how to really just describe it (laughs) no i i think you're right like um well in two ways like the for the reality thing it was so i think a really like astute way my friend put it was like 
you know, if you used to watch Survivor, everyone would just kind of be like doing whatever and like yeah. having their personalities lead the way. But now everyone mm-hmm. on Survivor has watched all of Survivor and they're all mm-hmm. like utilizing their awareness of how Survivor works to then play Survivor, which is just mm-hmm. like a whole different level of like how, you know, it's it's like you said, it becomes more of a performance Mm-hmm. And maybe that is related directly to like the way that we live our lives online and how mm-hmm. kind of our entire existence is more of a performance now than even it was 10 years ago, especially yes. for these shows that have run that long, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think honestly, to me, I feel like it started with the usage of confessionals. Mm-hmm. And to yeah. me, the confessionals should be because right now there's so much emphasis on the confessionals really being a like a core part of the show like your enjoyment of the show which uh to me is just that speaks volumes about like the lack of talent these women have mm-hmm. to perform when they're on camera because uh confessional is such a you know uh it's like we're really actually not seeing the real ostensibly confessionals be like this is the real me this is my real opinion on this but it's such a controlled environment i don't really want to the real you is really when you're reacting to conflicts and you're in a place where you can't you feel like you can't be confessional you know and when you watch things like you know like laguna beach or the hills where there's no confessionals and i think also very early seasons of Real Housewives actually. And yeah, very just like when the reality show was being like, <laughs> you know, a birth or like this new concept of television um, that you, you, the confessionals just were not a part of the, um, you know, cell. And yeah. I think that was like, I just kind of almost prefer reality TV because you're able to, think about like oh god like to see people actually reacting in real time to things and you know they're not in like a safe environment where they can confess everything um yeah you know to me I'm like why why use the confessional to say it's like rip the band-aid off in front of all the ladies on camera and make a good fight scene you know right Mm -hmm. or even like if you just let if you just showed everyone's reactions in the moment and let the audience interpret what every character is thinking or every person on the show is thinking that in and of itself is more exciting and more discussion worthy than cutting to like a confessional that was filmed probably like 10 10 weeks later where they Mm -hmm. were like just prompted to say something or have a big reaction Mm -hmm. yeah i uh and i think yeah, it's interesting. I just watched the reunion of Real Housewives New York and a lot of the conversation was circled around like, we just, well, we're all mad at each other because we just watched the confessionals. And then there was like some really good crying scenes. I'm like, where was this the whole season? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. we could have had some great moments. And um, and, and also though that was like a really juicy episode because I'm like wow now I'm like learning more about these characters that um and I'm getting it in one episode 
that you know we could have like explored so many more dimensions and like all the whole six episodes where they were just kind of like dancing around each other and it, it you know performing but really like self being hyper self-aware it's very like there's so many levels of like metacognition that's going on it just muddies like the very core elements of like really diving into some sort of complex and like getting the audience invested yeah. in these people's lives and like their their value like they're just understanding like their three-dimensional um you know characters because it's like it's like their brand now is that they are this mm -hmm. like not just the housewives but like i remember watching this was it the circle there's some mm -hmm. kind of reality show where like a character went from like the circle to love is blind to like another netflix reality show mm -hmm. and the whole thing was like oh, like she's making a career where her brand is like, I played this role on mm -hmm. a reality show, which is cool in some ways. Mm -hmm. But then it's also like what you said, where like there's so much protection of a brand to assure that I'm going to be on the next season or that I'll still be here in six mm -hmm. months um, that you kind of lose any authenticity or any genuine risk uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I don't know how, well, I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with the Chicago comedy community and it's like legacy, I, I suppose, oh, yeah. but um, my husband and I like earlier in our like time living here post-college, we used to hang around like the comedy scene. Um, and spend a lot of time with people who were like really heavily involved and dedicated to the comedy scene here. And what I just, what we just really kind of pulled us away from the comedy scene here is sort of what you're describing, like this um, pull away from the performance to say, get it because it's a joke <laughs> or like, totally. I yeah. just, I call it the Bo Burnham effect, you know, like oh, where, <laughs> oh, yeah. where it's like, guys, you know, get it because we're on a show. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, uh, and I, I just, I mean, to me, like as a theater person, like the first thing you learn about is like this suspension of disbelief. Like you want to mm -hmm. believe like, you're not and which is like this like it's a very strange like cultural shift because i think it signals some sort of like spiritual uh like um bankruptcy that that's uh you know so widely um like runs so rampant in people and runs very rampant in uh cultural like tastemakers and everything because um uh, everything is, has this element of metacognition of like get it guys because it's a show <laughs> like mm -hmm. I don't want it to be a show you know I just want to feel like I'm invested and I'm real and it makes me think about reality um yeah it's very yeah so anyway in the comedy community there was like a very strange like shift in people's like almost personalities uh where it's ceased to uh, like become uh, yeah, about like, it started not being funny, essentially, <laughs> like, everybody yeah. just stopped being very funny. And um, 
everything became very like self self serious um which is weird <laughs> you know yeah i so this might not surprise you because i'm like a white guy with glasses <laughs> but like i used to be super into improv it was like i think in the 2010s improv was like such a big thing and the, mm-hmm. I it did, was yeah yeah and it i think it fell apart for a variety of reasons but like I saw very similar to what you're saying in New York when when comedy kind of shifted away from these weird improv and sketch groups and it became less about like, oh, I'm in a comedy group. It became more about, oh, I am a one-person brand. I do mm-hmm. uh, these videos like I upload daily or I, if I'm mm-hmm. a stand-up, I upload like crowd reaction videos. Um, and I like what you I like how you coined it Bo Burnham comedy because my friends and I we call it PowerPoint comedy where like yeah <laughs> that's really good way of putting it the whole the whole and I've I say this I have to qualify it again like I've seen I have friends who do comedy like this and I've seen it and I've it's worked for me in some regards but in other regards I think you're exactly right where someone goes up and they're so detached from it and it kind mm-hmm. of feels like when the jocks at school do like uh the talent show and they like dress up as cheerleaders and like the whole joke is just that like they're there mm-hmm. um and yeah. that they're not putting in any effort it kind of feels like like you said it's kind of pervaded everything where everyone is so detached and no one is willing to like actually make themselves look stupid which is kind of the whole point of comedy mm-hmm. um yeah it's so interesting that you bring that up in terms of like Chicago because it happened I feel like simultaneously in New York maybe everywhere and it's just a like you said it was like a vibe shift it was it was sort of like I think it was inevitable too as well like I think at some point there's just a peak and it really did need to come to an end because it ended up becoming some at least like from my observations it sort of functioned just like a multi-level marketing scheme oh, where absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so like boy. so yeah. I mean we actually met a lot of people in the community that like have since like become like a couple of like our best closest friends mm-hmm. but the, you know we kind of all walked away from like that time in our lives with the you know the same sentiment where um you know this you know I like improv olympic just like this ostensibly like this huge institution but even when the institution was in its most like cultural relevance like its most like severe relevance and like draw for people to come into the city and move here um it they were barely like making rents on the the building and the minute the pandemic happened they had to sell the building and the whole like everybody left the city and the institution collapsed um, and it was over. (laughs) And that's just kind of, yeah, that's honestly like, that's just what happened. And I think it was for the better. Um, There just had, there just had to be a turnover. Um, And I think, yeah, I, it's right now, honestly, is like a really cool and interesting time because I'm, you really don't really, you don't understand what's going on until you look back in retrospect. But 
I'm very like interested in terms of like where people are now in terms of they're trying to find uh, some signal of what should, what should we be into? Like, what should we be paying attention to in culture um, and why it's important? And I don't know if like, I'll ever, I don't know if I, yeah, I just have so many ideas about that because I don't think you really know until you look back, but um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> well, it's actually, bring it brings it back to like why I feel like a podcast like this and hearing you interview these other playwrights and artists, theater makers, people that I'm like not always like super aware of before I hear their episode it kind of makes me feel like uh, we're in a better place than when we were pre-pandemic. I mean, mm -hmm. actually, that's, sorry, I shouldn't say that because obviously <laughs> we're not in a lot of ways, but in terms of like, um, like you said, like pre-pandemic, there were all these industries and institutions that were kind of built off um creating a pipeline for artists where it's like oh you pay for this class and then you uh take it you take five classes and then you can audition for the stage show and if you uh don't make it then you can pay for another class and so on and so forth and now I feel like people have kind of completely abandoned those institutions mm -hmm. and more and more I find that people are taking care of each other it's less mm -hmm. of like a there is that individualism we were talking about, but there's also this like really interesting rise in what I feel like are collectives where mm -hmm. people are like, you know, maybe we aren't all interested in the same thing, but we can kind of help each other out or we can kind of create a space um, where we can support each other and help each other out. Um, and mm -hmm. that really feels like the most positive form of the future to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that people, like when I talk to people, I really like um, that people are, seem to lead with curiosity mm -hmm. and people who are uh, carving out space for yeah. new works to be developed. It's really led with a lot of just like curiosity and um, like trying to uh, give a place for artists who are still in process. So there's no pressure to, you know, have a fully fleshed out uh, product that's like squeaky and shiny and easily digestible. Um, like one of my buddies like has a collective where like the whole uh, like mission is to just um, look at um, and observe artists that are just truly in process, like processing and because, which is great because there's an element of like I don't even know what I'm saying <laughs> but I'm trying to articulate it in my art form and doing the best I can and which is the best way I think because there's uh not like this huge like premeditation of like what you have to say um on every single point um and I guess, yeah, that totally relates to dialogue as well, because people like just don't really actually know why some, we sometimes we don't we don't know why we do things the way we do. Um, even if we, we can be so self-aware. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, but um, I just think, yeah, most of the time people 
actually don't know why they do what they do and don't know what they want either, which is like the best part because it like carves out space for people to argue about it. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. I like because, yeah, I, I, I really feel that actually, like I felt before the pandemic, there was such a emphasis on like, oh, like don't show your work until you're ready. Don't be... Mm-hmm you know, like when you're, when everything is ready, you'll be accepted by the, like this gatekeeper or this institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, more power to the people that that works for. Mm-hmm. But I feel like post that there's been a, a kind of like this, I don't want to call it like a renaissance, but there's been mm-hmm. so much more independent production. There's been so much more interesting stuff going on. And it doesn't feel like when people are creating their independent works, they're not trying to pander to some kind of institution that they want to pick it up. It's more about like doing it because this is the time to do it. Like this is the work I want to put up at this moment. Um, yeah. It's been really exciting. Yeah. So you so super off topic, but you said oh, something earlier. <laughs> no, uh-huh. you said something earlier that I was like really interested. But you uh, said that uh, you were spectacularly laid off. (laughs) Is there a story behind that? I just Uh, let, I'm only interested because I was violently laid off or fired, I guess. Oh, violently. I'm so sorry. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's fine. (laughs) Um, So when I went to college and like really got into, I went to college not knowing what I wanted to do. And when I got into theater, I was like, this is good, but I know I'm not going to be able to live on this. So I have to, mm-hmm. so I did like uh, computer science as a side. And when I got out of college, I applied to coding jobs and I got one. Mm-hmm. And like, I remember, I like very vividly remember like arriving that first day at like that coding job and like sitting down and like they showed me everything. And then like the guy who was supervising me left for a second and I like, mm-hmm literally like opened google and like started looking at other jobs because i was so scared of like the mundanity <laughs> of what it was um you, you just got there and you were like wow this yeah is every day i guess <laughs> it was like a windowless room and a cubicle and no. i was like immediately depressed and i was like i can't that do has this. to be an osha violation honestly <laughs> <laughs> it really has to it was it was bleak i mean it was nice, obviously, to have a job out of college, but uh, I stayed there. Um, but I was like completely for I was there for like a year and a half. And I like don't I didn't realize it at the time, but I was like completely on autopilot. Like I was completely like I would just wake up and go to work and I like would have no memory of the time I spent there. And I still really don't mm-hmm. remember what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> um, and I say spectacularly laid off because like uh, the what happened was the company I was working for merged with another company and it ended up the merger or ended up failing. And like, they were both in like, they ended up in huge debt. So they had to like lay off our whole department. And my boss, I remember was like crying, laying me off because he felt so bad for me. But I was like, <laughs> this is the best thing to happen to me. Wow. Uh, it wasn't for like two weeks and then I started mm-hmm. being really scared about paying rents. Um, but that's, uh, 
that's what I consider. And like after that moment, I was like, okay, I have to be much more careful with the kind of work I'm looking at in my life. Um, but what about you? You said you were failed off violently or sorry, laid off violently. Yeah. I mean, it was good because I want to write a play about it now, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I similarly, I, I come from, I mean, I'm a theater practitioner first always. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, I have worked in tech at tech companies for most of my career. And I started in advertising and I really loved advertising actually, because um, just the personalities I would meet um, were just crazy. I just, I met the craziest people. I met the dumbest people. Um, I met the most cracked out people who work in media and were essentially just media personalities. Um, Advertising is kind of, it's basically like a sales job essentially. and yeah, I, I just really enjoyed the environment of, yeah, being around people who are always just on their worst behavior. Um, because yeah. when you work in like a creative industry like that, um, people just have free reign to be insane. Uh, and what's it sucks for like someone like me, who's just like, on the bottom of the totem pole and you know i'm completely disposable so uh, you know i've been like disposed of you know many times in my life but um i am like always like so thankful for it because i mean in terms of just like ideas and like being in the world sometimes i'll meet somebody i'm like oh like this is amazing like i just because you forget that there are crazy people in the world (laughs) and um it it, i liked being in advertising because it was a good reminder uh to me that um everything is everything comes back to dysfunction like dysfunction is just how things are made um and it just gives me a lot of hope (laughs) i guess Mm -hmm. because sometimes you want to like go into a project with being like, I have to be this perfect uh, person and I have to like make this product in the most uh, efficient, optimized way possible. But when I think back to like a creative director I work with who is like always violently drunk in the office and then he had to be laid off and then some other producer came in, he was on cocaine all the time. Like, it's just, a, it's something yeah. that honestly will never go away ever. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed advertising. And then I moved into sort of like retail tech. Um, and then I was at a startup. I like worked like the hardest I've ever worked, um, mm. was a high performer. And then long story short, I was just, uh, just told to my face that I'm like, just worthless. I should have been fired earlier. Oh my God. <laughs> and yeah. it was, it was just like so amazing, really, because you actually, and I think this is why theater is so good, like important, because like people actually don't like have an abstracted idea about what, um, what, yeah, I guess, evil, quote unquote, like, you know, what bad guys are, you know, right, <laughs> like. Right people have like this weird abstracted idea of um, how uh, like horrible people exist. Like they're like evil people in towers that are like rubbing their hands together (laughs) and like calculating when, uh, you know, uh, 
bad behavior and like just uh, dastardly horrible behavior is so banal and very commonplace so like when I had this horrible experience um I was like of course when I experienced it it was very just jarring because I just had never been exposed to like somebody that like degraded me and exploited me so much um but I mean if I look back on everyone I've worked with I'm like no there are thousands of people like this and this actually happens every day um that doesn't mean that like it caused me a lot of pain and suffering obviously uh that it didn't cause me like pain and suffering like that's valid but um (laughs) it just it helps me to put things in perspective because now when I like go into it people are like when I talk about it at length people are like oh my god that's horrible that must have been the worst thing ever and it's like I guess it was the worst thing ever to this point but it's more of like the point of the story is like just a testament to how like banal like bad behavior is and if you know did it it does it suck to feel disposable yes but the sad reality is like everybody's disposable. Right, um, right. So there's like the, there's almost sort of this um, dialectic that's always going on when you feel precarious like that. But it, what's yeah. interesting is like, I think coming from a theater background, I feel like I'm like pre, uh, it's like predetermined already in me to think like, this is very temporary and I have to like really, like be the most and be the extra because it could be gone in a flash you know (laughs) yeah 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 well I kind of I mean I agree with like a lot of what you just said especially in terms of just like the banality of evil specifically Mm -hmm. in tech and Mm -hmm. how I think tech if you if we view like our world like we were saying like things have like changed in such a weird way and like part of that I feel like is that our jobs have become more and more anonymous and less humanizing. And like you said, Mm -hmm. like that emphasis on like you're replaceable, like Mm -hmm. you're a number on a sheet and you can be Mm -hmm. docked anytime. I feel like all that mentality comes from the tech industry and how the tech industry Mm -hmm. is like, like you said, like in advertising, it's like a weird mosaic that everyone Mm -hmm. plays like a weird part of in the puzzle, but in tech, it's all numbers. It's all like impersonal. No one really likes to like have a human interaction or like talk Mm -hmm. to each other. And that impersonality, I feel like is kind of reflected in like the tech that we're given to the world. Mm -hmm. And now everyone is like insane because we all treat each other like Mm -hmm. we're not humans. I know. (laughs) It's true. Like the minute, I mean, like it was truly, it's just like the wider lip I was I'm very like a heads down kind of person I don't like to I like to lead with performance because I know like because of what yeah you just explained like I want the numbers to be uh the defining factor of like you know my value but then the minute I kind of like created some friction and like put a little wrench in terms of like how like powerful the numbers really could be it was just like well she's kind of a liability because she likes to argue so we have to kind of kick her to the curb 
my god yeah it's so dark dude <laughs> I, th wow. there's more there's more to the story which will come eventually but um <laughs> it was it was really really dark um but um yeah I think it's honestly it's good it was it's good to have like exposure on some level because at least in in real life you know like mm -hmm. we see things on like television and like on the internet about like war and like horrible uh lawsuits and like discriminate like tech personalities ad media personalities but it's really just hits some kind of way when you're actually face to face with it um yeah it's kind of like when i saw um i guess yeah it's like when you're at a dinner party and someone says something really really awkward <laughs> <laughs> and you you feel like you feel your stomach churning and then you go and tell your friends like, oh my God, I was at this dinner party. Like someone said something really awkward, but you had to be there to like really feel <laughs> the yeah. weight of what just happened, <laughs> you know? Oh, I totally um, feel that. Especially like you said, like we're, if we're in this world of artists, there are, you know, there's, there's a dichotomy of there's artists who for whatever reason can like spend their whole lives within the realm of the arts, whether that's mm -hmm. some kind of inherited wealth or some kind of just wealth they've generated off their art. And then there's people who have to, like us, like don't put our heads down and go work in this mm -hmm. like weird corporate existence and like mm -hmm. come back and be like, guys, it's so bad out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guys, no honestly, yeah. like I, I just came out of something crazy, like you wouldn't believe this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think whether, you know, you stay like art isolated and like an art arts community and you do that for your whole life, I think on some level, it's so good to, you know, get out in society and like be as exposed to um, uh, ch chaos and dysfunction as much as possible. Uh, because that's this is the great uniter to me like everything just is um just rooted in the absolute chaos um that's why you you gotta write that play because I feel like I, mean, <laughs> I see so many plays or tv shows about people that's like about tech but it's all you can tell it's just like what they've read in the news and yeah it's exactly what you're saying it's lacking that the cynicism of the banality of the whole thing the whole like just mm -hmm. the fact that it's also impersonal um that it's not like elon musk is like rubbing his hands together to conspire against the world it's mm -hmm. much more like what what you experienced yeah it's more like very like stupid and clunky and dumb and like nobody read the manual for this and right oh we didn't we didn't edit this one document and now there's like a miscommunication something the dumbest stuff happens um which is like best because it just like makes everything like it makes you feel better kind of about like um your own fallibility like I really I, it's like a good thing to like remind yourself like if someone can do x y and z then like you could do it too anybody can do it um you right. know which is it's a good thing to remind yourself um do you have yeah do you have any specific like plays that like oh, are yeah, like, a huge influence <laughs> yeah no that was a while ago um 
Yeah. Okay. So I think the one, so there was a play that my professor in like undergrad gave me called Time in the Conways, which I, that was like the first play I read that I was like, okay, this medium is really sick. Uh, it's really, this is, they're doing good stuff over here. That was a play that was like, I'm not sure if you've read this one, but it's like, uh, it starts with like this family in the late 20s and they're like really uh, rich and they're like, they're like preparing for this person's birthday party and they're having this really wonderful time. And there's like this weird like incel guy who like comes in and is like kind of asking one of the sisters to marry him. And they're like, no, fuck off. You're weird and ugly. Mm -hmm. um, that's act one. And act two, it fast forwards 10 years later and it's the depression and the family has lost all their wealth. And now that like weird incel guy has like all this power over them and he's like using it to try and manipulate his way into their family via marriage. But, and that like is a standard play, right? But the best part about that play is that then it goes to act three which is mm -hmm. back at the party from the first act. It's back in the 20s and mm -hmm. we see everything play out again, but now we know exactly what's going to happen to this family and it all mm -hmm. adds this extra like dramatic weight to it. Yeah. And that was the first play I was like, okay, this one is, mm -hmm. this is a, like we can do things in this medium that I've never really seen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. I really like that uh, sometimes we forget that we can manipulate like the uh, like linear convention of storytelling. Oh, um, yeah. I love uh, like one of the plays that like made a huge impact on me in my uh, earlier years uh, was um, well, uh, oh yeah, thirty nine, the thirty nine steps. Oh yeah, yeah. And great, great, great um, yeah. so so good. And I saw it in London, in the West End. I and I actually saw it in London, in the West End twice. Once with my family, and then again on a school trip. Um, and yeah, I just loved that play so much. And um, I think also it just like inspired me in terms of um, what you can do with the athleticism of actors. Um, I think that's like a good uh, production of the 39 steps is a great testament to how, uh, you know, high achieving an actor can be because it's such a very physical show. <laughs> yeah, 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 the physicality and it becomes, um, it almost becomes like, like, like we were talking about earlier, part of the joy of the show is like the impression with the idea that this actor can actually pull off these physical um, mm -hmm. stunts or these, these abilities mm -hmm. um, every, every, and do it every night, do it like pitch perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, even the tension that like, this might be the night you see it and it doesn't go right. Mm -hmm. So good. Um, yeah, and I also, I really like when I saw God of Carnage for the first time and I saw that oh, lady throw play. up on oh, yeah. stage, <laughs> I was like, wow, not even for like the fact that they were able to like so realistic, like I could see her get sick and I saw like vomit come out of her mouth. 
I almost in that moment wasn't even thinking about the fact that they had like maneuvered the simulation of somebody vomiting. I actually was genuinely like so shocked in the moment that it it suspended my disbelief because I was in full belief that she was actually vomiting on stage. And it it also made me think about after I'm like, wow, she must have been like so uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) um to vomit in an awkward be feel so awkward she wants to vomit you know I think that's really funny I love anything like that anything that's like um when you enter because I feel like everyone whether they're a theater artist or outside of it they walk in to an American theater probably specifically and they have like a preconceived notion of what is possible Mm -hmm. And anytime a play breaks out of that possibility, it's like so exciting. And it is like, even yeah. as little as like, oh, I they didn't mime it. It's, she actually vomits on stage. It's like, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it kind of like makes you think like the possibilities are limitless. There are so many plays that are people walking and talking, which is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I kind of always come back to um, like, there's a popular writing exercise that, you know, is like, okay, make it bigger, make it more audacious, make it more weird. And it has to fit um, the story. Um, and it has to exist within the conventions of this reality that we're in. Um, so I always think of like just very mundane or maybe even very dramatic conversations that I've had in my life. But then I'm thinking like, what actually was happening in this space? Like, did I throw something, <laughs> you know? Um, did I, what, what did I have in like, what properties, like what props were <laughs> around at the time? Um, like all of these little tiny details, um, that really make up the, the like color of a scene. Um, and yeah, I just like it when things like break and uh, whether it's intentional or not, I just like to see things. I love to see people break and I like to to see things break for sure. Definitely. And when you're talking about dying, like, or seeing a character die, someone die, like the way in which they die on stage is also so important. If it's like something, like you said, like that breaks the possibility of what we thought was possible, mm-hmm. or if if it even feels like it's a mistake at first, which is dangerous, but like in a way that's kind of exciting and exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I actually never thought about that before. Like the way in which someone dies <laughs> can like is varied, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. yeah. What um what do you kind of uh look for in terms of like a character's arc or um their like own um you know path maybe pathological like trajectory in a story? Do you usually lead with character first or um Oh, um, I think probably it goes like I have an idea for the conflict and then mm-hmm. maybe the best part is like trying to figure out why these two people are in that conflict and that always comes down to character mm-hmm. and character is the best. It's like so awesome when 
characters are like speaking in ways that you like or they kind of reveal themselves um mm -hmm. or you read it back and you're like oh this person is like so fucked up in a way I had no idea they were mm -hmm. when I was writing this down yeah, yeah. that's I, that's always nice when characters just like reveal who they are yeah. um I like I always like to think like oh you know always believe people when they tell you who they are and I think everybody because I, I I think a huge mistake that like I've made before in the past uh is like just assuming the best in people <laughs> like I think it's yeah. a very virtuous quality to have so I'm like oh yes like always assume the best in everybody which I mean, I feel like you should like lead with the good intentions, but um, sometimes, uh, yeah, I feel like we rob ourselves from actually considering like, well, maybe this person is actually revealing to everyone exactly who they are. Yeah. Um, th yeah, through the way that they behave. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, especially now, I feel like there's this push to have um like if you have a villainous character like there's a push to have that person um be sympathetic in some other ways or like that we find out at the end they're all not all that bad but I kind of like the opposite <laughs> where mm -hmm. we find out this guy's bad and we are waiting for him to turn but he just is he ends up doubling down and gets worse and worse mm -hmm. and meanwhile these people that we on the other side, maybe people that we have sympathized with or attached ourselves to, they reveal themselves in ways that are unsavory to us. And now we're kind of left choosing, you know, we're, we're left like a little bit more distanced and we don't know who exactly is correct or, mm -hmm. you know, there's no surrogate for the audience to attach themselves to and be like, I'm a good person because I align myself with this person. Mm-hmm. Is that it might have been yeah. all convoluted. Yeah. No, like I I think one of the I think that's actually very well said because sometimes um I think coming from a theater background, like being very heavily a lot of my life has just been so invested in like character study. Um I always am constantly over analyzing uh whether you know I th and I think it's actually a good thing to like look at like evil people um, and think like, well, they're doing their best with what they have. And in their minds, they actually think they're like very virtuous. And maybe in this fucks up like story, they're actually the most virtuous ones because they're working in their best interest. And maybe another character is like working um, on behalf of somebody else. Um, that's always something I, I think of um, because it's always the character that you least expect that is gonna like when you like think and like digest it like like for example it took me a really long time to figure out that Carmela from the Sopranos is probably like the most unvirtuous character mm -hmm. in the show <laughs> like I was always like so I'm like uh, when I first watched The Sopranos, you feel so bad for Carmela. And then yeah. at the end, when you actually think about it and, I, and digest it and rewatch it a couple of times, you're like, this is probably the most um, 
you know, morally bankrupt person in the whole show and very, um, you know, probably the destructive and just a huge thorn in everyone's side and yeah <laughs> I, lo- I love Carmela so much I like I, mm-hmm. I I feel like exactly because of what you're saying like I identify her with her the most mm-hmm. because she's the person who like so desperately wants to be the normal person in the normal house and mm-hmm. like she wants her life to have all the comforts it has but not ever confront the evil that like gives her that yeah. comfort and I love how she like employs that dissonance. And there's what's it called? There's that uh great sequence where she like goes to a therapist and mm-hmm. she like describes yeah. their marriage, and the therapist is like, Well, you should leave him immediately. Like mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> he's a criminal. Like, what are yeah. you doing? If you're you are complicit in this unless you leave him right now. And mm-hmm. then rather than like confront that she's just like I'm gonna go to a different therapist or uh, I'm gonna see yeah yeah you kind of make a realization like you know what does she really want to me it's like I think she just wants to hear somebody um like say back to her what she wants like I just I feel Mm -hmm. like it makes you think about like yeah what we really don't maybe a, a lot of uh, conflict is about not resolving the conflict. I think that, yeah, I think conflict probably comes, like the greatest conflict comes from the desire to um, not resolve the conflict at all. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I get in a conflict with somebody and I actually don't want to come to a resolution or a compromise. I just want to make a point. <laughs> yeah. You know? oh, totally, dude. Oh, I, yeah, that's like great drama right there. Cause that's like mm-hmm. you, you're making the active choice. It's still a decision. It still leads to consequences. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we, I think we always think that like, it has to be, there has to be that resolution. There has to be some kind of uh, direct address in that way. Yeah. And that's feel, it's just, a, it's very apt that, um, the you know the best conflicts you know it can only uh end uh in you know someone dying (laughs) (laughs) and um that's like the the best the kind of the best way to put a pin in it um but uh it it does like make you think about uh you know uh, like global (laughs) um global politics and Mm. how it to me, I feel like coming from a theater background, it, um, to me, when I think about like politics, I just really understand politics as uh, just a game of like flexing on your haters and mm-hmm. um, just um, not trying not to resolve any conflicts at all. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people, a lot of characters and people in general just um, get some kick out of a conflict existing solely because they're associated with it that's something else like I really love about conflicts because on some level I think we really desire conflicts a lot totally I feel like yeah this is gonna be like almost stonery but like yeah (laughs) you're saying yeah what you're saying makes me feel like that conflicts 
makes us like people maybe who are like elected democratically know that like conflict is what keeps them in office mm-hmm. because as long as the conflict persists people will keep electing them to fight in that conflict mm-hmm. whether it's like over an issue that they believe in on one side or the other so there is no interest in ever resolving it because resolving it is like the death of their career because mm-hmm. that would be they've done it we don't need you anymore um so you know conflict is to to be alive right yeah definitely i mean even when like really good things happen or like a character like triumphs or mm-hmm. uh there's like a happy resolution to the conflict it, there is still like a sense of um disruption mm-hmm. in, in a way um like on some level like there's a pain or like a conflict associated with um you know very euphoric feelings um and yeah it's it is also very weird like on some level when I had like when I experienced a trauma in my life something I didn't expect about like processing the emotions associated with that it was something horrible that happened in my life but um there was a moment in time in like my recovery process that I actually felt this huge wave of euphoria for no reason at all Mm -hmm. and it probably has to do something with like somatic healing or like the nervous system or something um but I think that's like a huge part of it as well that um like your like fallibility um is like a huge uh, like the central part of like that sort of conflict um, that you you can't really control how you react in any way. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it was weird because I I didn't expect to feel like this weird wave of euphoria, like I was on top of the world, even though something horrible had happened. Um, but I was like reading a lot, and I think also I've been reading a lot about like sometimes people experience huge waves of euphoria when like they lose like a loved one or like someone close to them dies, which I didn't, I also didn't think about. Um, but yeah, it's very, it's very strange. It's very strange. Cause I think on some level, um, caught like you, there's like a control element. Like when an audience like talks about a character, they're like, well, they should behave this way because everyone can control their emotions right Right, to me I'm like no (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, that's yeah thanks for sharing that with me because Mm -hmm. I know that's like super it's hard to like even like talk about just to even feel any kind of euphoria after that I feel like we've been kind of told that you're only allowed to have a certain kind of reaction to certain things Mm -hmm. and to feel contradictory to that is I feel like there's like a guilt instilled in that sometimes mm-hmm. um but I definitely know what you're talking about especially when it comes to like a person who you've lost and you've kind of know you're going to lose them for a long time mm-hmm. like there is a I would you know I don't want to say I yeah I even feel guilty like agreeing with you but I'm like no it, that is what it is it's euphoria because it's like um there is a you feel a resolution um mm-hmm. you feel like there's so much that you've hung on to and been anxious about about how it's going to happen and how mm-hmm. like 
what goes next. Yeah, it's like the lead. It's like the leading up to like this big climactic moment, and then when uh, you get like a resolution to that that you've been waiting for, I think there's just like your nervous system releases like hormones or there's neurons flying, um, and then your body just like reacts in a random way um and yeah i think some on some level like there's only like so much like you can control over that um and yeah it's it's really really interesting and i've been like really invested in like and i think also coming from an acting background um i always like come back to like what i mean how much every day i'm like how many times did I like breathe today? You know, <laughs> like, you know, um, because yeah, I think if I think about like most of like the foul, like most like morally bankrupt characters, like I've ever read about in plays, I'm like, they probably are holding their breath most of the time, <laughs> you know, kind of crazy. Or are you working on anything now or? Yeah. Um. Okay. I just finished a play that is based off like a I have like um kind of a recurring set of nightmares where my parents uh are trying to kill me and the way Whoa. the way but it's not like the way where I'm like a kid and they're killing me I'm like a fully grown adult and they're killing me mm -hmm. um and I trying to understand why I'm having that dream I wrote this play wow. where I move back in, or, you know, a character who is somewhat like me moves back in with his parents and he becomes like a burden on their lives. He's like, I'm going, he's like, I'm moving back in. I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to stay in my room and play video games until I die. And then his parents uh, begin to conspire to kill him. And they debate kind of uh, whether or not they're like, what they're doing is better for him or not. I know that sounds dark, but oh, it's, that's so cool! It's, it's supposed to be funny, yeah. <laughs> I never, I never thought about that. Wow, <laughs> that's really interesting. What? Yeah. yeah, I do you have very vivid dreams. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I've had. I don't want to call them night terrors because I don't think I know people who've had night terrors, and I don't have that. But I do have like these really intense dreams of being pursued that are like or like my parents are trying to kill me or, or the cops are trying to like arrest me. It feels like, like, like when Kafka writes about that in his like mm -hmm. diaries, that's what it feels like, but I'm not like paranoid like him. He's, mm -hmm. he was like out of his mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just like occasionally yeah. have a dream. That's yeah. like that, yeah. Do you see, are you able to like recall it and like in your mind's eye sort of? Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes I'll be in there and I'll be like, I've been here before. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. the one I have with the cops is like, I'm in this, well, I grew up in New Jersey and there's this Toys R Us. And in the dream, I'm driving my car and I hit someone in the Toys R Us parking lot. And then I spend the rest of the dream, like just thinking about how my life is over because mm -hmm. I've killed someone in this parking lot and like, how am I going to fess up to it? And I mm -hmm. swear... I've never done that, but it mm -hmm. is a dream that I have. Wow. Yeah. So I, where are you in that process? Like you, 
mentioned like trying to figure out why um do you have how is that going <laughs> um yeah it's it's really interesting it's kind of just about i think it's ultimately about like feeling when i don't know how you feel in terms of being in the arts and having you know parents who maybe have expectations as to what success should be but mm -hmm. i do think that it's maybe related into like i you know i've been doing this for x amount of time and i want to have something to show for it mm -hmm. and if I don't have a version of it that it translates to what my parents believe is like mm -hmm. good, then there's like this weird guilt. I feel, I feel, mm -hmm. I feel just guilty all the time that I uh, chose mm -hmm. to be an artist with my parents because they worked so hard to give me an education. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I think that is really it's as I think that's a very common thing to feel um and I think that's very normal too because I think yeah no matter what kind of parenting you had we all kind of uh have we all kind of uh, you know socialized to have an idea of what a product should look like what a success should look like um and I think there's so much like I when I think about when I was in high school and everybody was applying to colleges, it was like, this is, you know, it's like your life sentence almost like if oh, yeah. you don't get into it's way too much pressure to put on a young person. And I think, you know, your brain is not even fully funk like <laughs> formed mm -hmm. at 18 yet. And I think there's an element of just uh, like brainwashing that goes on during that time because you're like oh shit like yeah you're right I have to be like successful I have to go to college and I'm gonna have to like generate something um and I think yeah there's a lot of pressure that is like very widely felt with being an artist where you feel like you have to produce something that looks a certain way <laughs> right you yeah know? and like what like it's so especially as culture has transformed so rapidly in the past in our adult lives like just how do we uh like what does qualify as that mm -hmm. and even you know sometimes it's not even just my parents it's just like what do I like I have an idea of what I want to be mm -hmm. have done and if it's not matching that specifically like then I'm you know, mm -hmm. guilty and depressed and like, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, it's hard to think. I mean, it also like the older you get, of course you have those very natural feelings of like, mm -hmm. I'm getting older. Like I, you know, I guess I can't fuck off anymore and like do whatever I want. And that is hard to think about. Like, I guess, you know, who am I? <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, what the yeah. hell like what was I thinking um no but okay. I guess yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody's having uh those dreams similar to that um I have like a very like recently I've had recurring dreams where I'm like I wake up and I'm half I'm like in that um point in your sleep cycle where you know that you're awake but the things that you're perceiving are still like in the dream. So you think that actually like the dream is like now materializing itself. And now this is actually reality. 
So I've been waking up recently thinking like, feeling like this really deep sense of dread because I have to go to school. And I don't know what that school is, like maybe high school or middle school, but like for my whole life, I, I <laughs> for a majority of my life, I woke up in the morning feeling like that dread and like expecting my mom to wake me up and just feeling like just this deep, deep dread because I have to go to school. And recently, yeah, I've just been like waking up um, thinking that I have to go to school and that this is this is so stupid. <laughs> like, yeah. and then I realized that I don't have to go to school and I'm like, oh, phew, I'm just employed. I'm, I'm unemployed, <laughs> like way better. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, oh my God. I, I know. Which is totally so weird. Really, yeah. Do you ever like wake up from a dream, but like still think it's real? Um, for a hot second yeah if I can give you like a really confessional thing when I was like six I had a dream that my sister was adopted and I woke up and I just still believed it and I believed it for like I don't even want to say how long like I thought my sister was adopted and I thought for some reason it was a secret we were keeping from her and then eventually I was like that's not true um but yeah, there's that. Um, sometimes, especially if these guilt dreams, I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh my God, okay, I'm safe. Like my parents have not decided to kill me. Um, or <laughs> or I'll slowly like in the dreams where I'm like thinking about how like my life is over and I'm going to prison, I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm in bed and it's Sunday. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah, phew. Yeah, but oh, there will be a that relief. Like, yeah the relief is it's such a it's such a relief like every single morning I wake up I'm like oh thank god I don't have to go to school that must Um, be an amazing feeling yeah it's so I mean for a a short period of time it's a horrible feeling but then I'm like oh thank god it's just a dream um yeah that I mean it is crazy I yeah I still don't know what's and I don't even know like if I believe in the notion that our subconscious is trying to like signal something to us Mm -hmm. um because I think when you're unconscious there's a lack of information so your brain is like picking up some like the closest thing within arm's reach but then I'm thinking about like well maybe that's not true because why is like my high school experience like the closest thing right and if that really matters, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. Like, I'm like, it's probably just I'm went to bed feeling a little bit more anxious. But then yeah. you do wonder, you're like, but why that specifically, right? Like, why? Yeah. Why school, right? Like, yeah, what, what is unresolved there? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's very normal to have stress dreams related to weather and losing your teeth. Like that's a very common Mm. thing. A lot of people experience, but when it's something like very, very specific um, from like your childhood and something like that, and something very like spectacular, like a a concept, the concept is so spectacular. Um, Yeah. yeah, It makes you, it really makes you wonder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've definitely talked about it with a therapist and been like, what do these mean? And the therapist is like, drink less caffeine. Like just basically that's all she could say. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, I had a huge like therapist journey this year. My therapist uh, earlier in the year was 
did like a horrible, like not, it's not her fault really, but she was a little older and she was kind of doling out like suggestions. And I think I had an expectation of what I really, I, I didn't really know what I wanted, I guess, out of therapy, but I naturally, I went to therapy thinking like, maybe I'll receive guidance. Um, but she kept telling me things I should do that just made me feel worse. <laughs> like yeah. you should do this. You should do, um, or she told me I was like having problems, like in my career, I guess. And like the notion of what a career, like same thing you're ex- like articulating, like, what is a career? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? And she, and I kind of like, technically I was like, uh, searching for some kind of practical advice. And she gave me practical advice. She was like, oh my God, like you should see a career coach. <laughs> and immediately I'm just pissed. Cause like that actually was the last thing I wanted to hear. Um, and is probably that absolutely will do me no good. Um, and then she said like a couple other things like, well, maybe you should join a group or like <laughs> you should join a club um and or you should yeah and I'm like I already have like my own groups in my club so I was just like flabbergasted that like she was saying like you should really stick with this or that and like anything she told me to do just pissed me off it's real and then boomer. it wasn't until yeah <laughs> it wasn't advice, a, yeah. yeah and it wasn't until like I found a therapist where I did most of the talking and then the therapist would only, only strictly ask me questions right now. My therapist doesn't tell, say any statements, literally only questions. Um, and it's like way, way, way better (laughs) of an experience, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. that feels like a a generational thing. I had the same thing when I, I was Mm -hmm. like in college, and I was having, like, I feel like everybody was doing this in 2013, but every, I, was, I was having panic attacks and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I went mm-hmm. to a therapist. It was like, it was the same thing. It was this old dude. And he was like, oh, you just have to realize that like, it's not, it's not real. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, <laughs> great. Cool. Thanks. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I'll never go to therapy again. Um, <laughs> but then I saw someone who's kind of younger, like you said, and it was the same thing where it's like, they can guide you. They have more familiarity with like the vocabulary or mm-hmm. they know, I think we just like, we're more sophisticated in the way we talk about our emotions now than maybe mm-hmm. the boomer generation was. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's maybe to uh, someone in like 1975, like just going to a group was the solution, but it's yeah, so much more existential or- now. Yeah. And I think it just has to do with like, um, the expansion of like the use of language. Um, like there are all these, uh, verbiages in like the therapist community where like, you should shy away from like words like should and like better. And, um, like, uh, and honestly, like yes or no, (laughs) and can't like, can't like, it just, it seems like, uh, kind of dramatic but when you apply it like when it's applied in like a therapeutic session I'm like wait that's actually kind of apt um, because my therapist now only um, asks me questions um, 
about like my emotions he will just say like does it feel like this or like am I on to something here like does it feel like you're in this situation or is this kind of like what you're experiencing because sometimes I don't know like I'm like well that's actually a good way of putting it like I think yeah maybe you know so it's more of like and it it, I feel like on from a patient perspective it makes me feel like I have more autonomy in like my own narrative you know absolutely Um, so I don't have to like dump it onto my husband you know all the time you know same way yeah my my girlfriend and I do the same thing we uh we give it to our therapist and like sometimes even when I am talking to a therapist I'm like most of this is so Sarah doesn't have to hear it like you know yeah. (laughs) yeah It's, you know, it's true. I think there's also just a general like socialization elements that like goes a long way in a therapeutic session. Um, Yeah, I don't know. But it's, it's really interesting, like the way language has like evolved so much. I feel like it's such a, uh, like when I think about like how people use verbiages and different like uh, phrases, um, I'm like, wow, this means so many things to so many different people and I think distilling it into like characters is like always something I like to think about because um like I'm a huge language person so I'm always thinking like I hope this person doesn't take this the wrong way but I can only think about that so much because like this is this I I speak English (laughs) you know And we're in this really interesting point in time where everybody is very familiarized with these therapeutic terms. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of have these plays, these dialogues or exchanges where people are fully uh, cogent of like these really high technical emotional terms and they can like manipulate each other with them. And then I think we're still kind of in the process of like reckoning with like what happens when bad actors or people who are intentionally manipulating with therapeutic language like what that means mm-hmm. uh, it's fun to explore uh maybe not fun to like live through but like no yeah, yeah. i love <laughs> i love exploring it for right. sure definitely um like i had this like language barrier with someone i was working with what well it wasn't actually a language barrier it was actually weirdly um i bypass the language barrier because this person said um here's a project consider doing this in a project when I hear the word consider I'm like no this is actually like a requirement I don't like if someone says like consider thinking of this um and I talked to like a peer of mine and he was like oh that's really interesting that like you actually got it because usually people respond to like this person's verbiage is and they actually don't do the consideration parts because they hear the word consider and they think like oh it's just something I should just like maybe have two thoughts about and like kick it to the side um to but to me I'm like no that's such a consider consideration is like such a heavy heavy word to me you know um which is like interesting because yeah just like always so many the same words mean so many different things to people even though we speak the same language right consider so powerful you're absolutely right (laughs) it's like 
consider this it's like no now that you've told me that i will only think about that right yeah exactly i'm like well now i can't not think about it like definitely um i used to work with like a bunch of russian people and Mm. uh something that's like very beautiful about the russian language is that they have um so many words for so many different concepts specific kinds of variable concepts that is just does not exist in in English at all um so sometimes I would say something and they're like what do you mean like do you mean like this in this context that it's just a high context language like and like Chinese almost like Chinese like a very high context language and there's different verbiages for every single kind of context um i'm trying to think of an example i just i usually can think of one but i just cannot right now um i mean that sounds like a dream to be honest like just the just that extra layer of context would be so revolutionary there's so much yeah just like weird subtext we live through right yeah yeah i think well yeah because english is very um so so casual that you can use the same word for every context and everyone's like oh yeah no that 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 tracks like that hits um but like we're very we're just like very informal culturally i actually even read somewhere that like the like uh like certain swear words are like losing their um like effectiveness because they're just like very casually um over maybe overused more i don't know if that's true but (laughs) no i believe that i mean i feel like i see that in like culture every Mm -hmm. day like i have no idea how you would have someone say an expletive with actual power right like yeah yeah i don't know what it is i just there's some like linguists i follow on like tiktok or whatever and they like talk about like technically the there's like weightiness of uh like cursing i guess that just maybe existed earlier (laughs) that don't exist anymore i have no idea um even in fourth grade like when some kid like whispers to you like a curse word that you've never heard before it's like the gravitas of that so it's all been gone yeah well that's why i like there are certain like swear words that are really um, like, what's the, to me, it's like, what, what really is the point of like swearing if um, you can't say certain words? Like, okay, I have not like, of course there are certain um, uh, ethnic slurs that I will never, ever, ever use, but there are other um, swear words that. I will absolutely use because no one else has used them. <laughs> and I feel like that actually accomplishes the goal of swearing uh, cool. in the first place. Like I grew I grew up in a house where like it was very um uh you know stigmatized to say Jesus Christ like um, in a angry way. So Catholic? Uh, Protestants. My dad okay. was raised Catholic. My mom, my grandfather on my mom's side is like a Presbyterian minister. Okay. And we grew up just like Protestants and like, just like, 
all American <laughs> Protestantism, yeah, yeah. wholesome and um, very wholesome household. Uh, but yeah, I was like very discouraged to say like Jesus or Jesus Christ, like in an emphatic like moments. And then later in my life, now that I have like my own life free, um, I like have so much like physical relief. Just, um saying jesus christ like 10 times a day <laughs> yeah you know? yeah it it hits so different uh and i can tell how much more it means for me when i say it. i grew up catholic like versus like my friends who grew up without religion or mm -hmm. in a different like where in any context where jesus christ was not as much of a mortal sin to say mm -hmm. they really like pounded that into us that was like uh, I for, I don't not up to my studies, but I remember that being like one of the worst things you could do because you're you're calling him without you know having a reason or you're using his name for uh, for the sake of not good. Yeah, and I think um, like later in my life, like reanalyzing the Bible more, I think they like it's talked about in the bible like you're not supposed to use uh jesus or god uh in the name like you can't like go and pillage uh like a whole city and like uh, rape every wo woman and like kill everyone's children and claim that god like it's your um you're sent by god and like god wants this i'm doing this because i'm like it's god's will like to me i'm like that's probably very literally what that means right but now like in the grand scheme of things kind of like the equivalent is like you know don't don't say jesus christ because it's god's will to do that when you stub your toe you know right. <laughs> or i like if someone if i'm like driving and i see someone do something crazy that's usually when i say it and i'm like mm. i guess i'm not invoking him to uh get better drivers on the road stuff mm -hmm. like that yeah yeah were your parents not um so your parents were like not religious or no they were my I was raised catholic um oh which okay I think <laughs> might play a part into the the guilt the, thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that I now that I say that out loud but like yeah it was uh um I just remember we had an after school program for catholic kids that was like basically where we were ingrained and like told like how how much gravity the word Jesus Christ had mm -hmm. um and it, I I still remember the exact like I remember the teacher telling me and like what it meant and it's mm -hmm. uh that stuff sticks with you yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> to the end of time yeah. that's really that's really interesting growing up as a Protestant you're like I, from a very early age, because so much of it has to do with your individual relationship to Jesus, it's almost like Jesus is like another family member that's like always mm -hmm. there. Like you're told all the time, like this person loves you so much and like you have a special connection with Jesus, almost like nobody else has. Um and it's a very individualized thing, which I think are like, I think is actually a very nice quality 
about Protestantism. And um, I think that's probably a very attractive thing about it. I'm very, I mean, right now I'm kind of estranged from Protestantism and um, just because but I just, I just grew out of it, I guess. And yeah, I've like yeah. since moved on, I attend an Orthodox, uh, a Greek Orthodox church right now. And oh, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because Greek Orthodoxy like teaches me like a lot about theater as well in terms of the practices are very, are seen as very um, like, Catholicism like my understanding of it is very like everything's very representational like the there are statues and that's like a representation and like um mm-hmm. an, an expression of the saint or like this uh historical event and orthodoxy is like there's actually no um like reimagining nothing is a representation actually every single thing that happens in the the church actually is a miracle it is real like the every single icon is consecrated and it's like very very serious and um every single thing that you do actually is like real (laughs) and not um a representation um and it's really which is really interesting because i think there are theatrical elements about Catholicism, which I really like because it's a representation. It's a reimagining, like, like the mimetic like element of it. Um, and orthodoxy, uh, yeah. Oh, no, I was gonna say I feel like Catholicism is more like Brechtian because it is. It is it's like we can never hope to actually achieve what the real thing is. So we have to acknowledge the artifice of it. And like you're saying, Orthodox. Is oh, I never thought about that, actually. Wow. Yeah, I guess that that is um, that that totally makes sense. Um, because, yeah, how could you ever <laughs> like actually like be like it actually ha- like who who am I to say, you know? Yeah, yes, I actually really like that. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just feel like the the intimidating thing about uh orthodoxy is like kind of for that reason uh, like i just don't want to like trip over something and like break something it feels like a lot of pressure to have that to yeah be in that moment like that yeah like i i get so nervous about um going to take going up to take communion because i'm like i don't want to like accidentally trip over somebody and then uh the like goblet thing falls on the floor and I need to like not show my face in there ever again because I just know that would absolutely happen to me um but yeah I mean I I just like um I always tell people like it's a free show (laughs) you know it's free um but yeah I don't know how do you feel about like um the like freedom access in terms of like participating in the arts um kind of it being feeling and also like even as somebody who's in the arts feeling like a lot of it is out of reach oh sure yeah i mean um well and this is also true i wonder if i was gonna ask if you feel this way as we are chicagoans 
who watch this watch a lot of our art through New York, like through this window mm -hmm. where we see like these really interesting, compelling scenes pop up. And in our city, it's not quite reflected the same way, I think for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, man. Um, <laughs> so wait, can we, can we reiterate the, question real quick i just want to no sure I, I guess like yeah to make a, a pedantic question a little shorter that? um <laughs> do you ever um feel like certain things like are out of do you ever feel like limited in any way by finances or like your access or just like feel conflicted in any way yes because, like some of the just material limitations <laughs> absolutely i think that Probably the biggest limit I feel, especially here, but in general in the whole world, especially in places where people are gathered in cities, is just space. Mm -hmm. Like you always hear about these famous theater companies that started, they're like, well, we were like Steppenwolf. They're like, Steppenwolf's mm -hmm. like, we started in a church basement and mm -hmm. we had people come to our shows. And if you look around, it's there are church basements still, but there mm -hmm. it's like it's $150 an hour to put up a show there. And I feel like there's become, there's less of a, uh, because of the financial burdens, this less, um, this decrease in space, maybe even like a, like if you like think of it as like the decrease in like third space, because mm -hmm. we spend our time online, mm -hmm. like, or there's no central gathering point. I feel limited just in terms of like, um, it's so much more difficult to get people together and put up a show in a place mm -hmm. without it costing you know thousands and thousands of dollars mm -hmm. which is in it's important to be able to put up things cheaply if we're going to do what we said where we're able to fail we're able mm -hmm. to try things out we're able to like make mistakes um and as things get more expensive and like it, that space becomes more limited there's more pressure to make those things perfect. And mm -hmm. when things are perfect, they're like more boring. You know, that's when we get these like packaged plays of like morality and like mm -hmm. everything that's super like, uh, like you have a takeaway from it because mm -hmm. we're responding to uh, the fact that we can't have messiness because there's no space for it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's my really roundabout yeah. way of say that's like the biggest thing I feel limited by yeah I've yeah I feel the same way like I think there are times when like my, like limitations have uh yielded a lot of like opportunities for like really good creativity I'm like huh, look how thrifty I was what a great right. moment of creativity uh creative ingenuity uh and then other times you know I'm like uh God damn it. Like, I really wish um, I didn't have to be like a creative genius right now. <laughs> like, there's some, there's some things where I'm just like, just a little bit more, I guess for me, it's like just element of like, I, I don't know what, okay. If somebody said like, I'm going to give you, let's just say some arbitrary number, like a hundred thousand dollars, like what would you probably put it towards? Holy crap. Uh, that would be amazing. And, and it, the <laughs> person said you can only put it towards like your art. 
oh just stuff that i would do um yeah because i do think you're right like yeah uh i would get a space and i would put up i would get all the collaborators that i love because i have a lot of actors and designers and directors who i think are really great and they do so much work with me that's like not paid i would love to compensate them and i would put up um a show in one of these spaces that has been like for so long um you know kind of not achievable mm -hmm. um maybe that's the most boring possible answer <laughs> sorry no i actually yeah. think um a lot of people would be on board with you um because i do see a lot of people basically kind of doing that because there is a there's a huge um, need for it and um what gives me a lot of hope is like uh people do show up uh with a lot of efforts for sure and like takes a lot of time and stuff but um the good thing is like i have like noticed just in my observations that like there is like a a demand for something like that which is like really really good so what are you working on right now what have you got coming up <laughs> oh sure um so i'm going to go i'm going to bushwick in two weeks to go put up a short play with the spade collective at adult cool. film yes um, who i think oh, yeah. you're familiar with right yeah yes love that they, they're so cool i met um Christian Flynn and Sarah, when we uh, we put up a show at the Brick this summer, me and my friends, and they also had a show there. And that was like kind of one of those community moments we're talking about where it's like, whoa, we're suddenly, we're all revitalized. We're all putting up work and we're going to help each other. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel really blessed that they would even consider me and help me put up a work like that. That's awesome. Um, Cool. Yeah. What what are the dates? <laughs> oh, sure, sure. That's November. Uh, that's November 15th, 16th, and 18th at Adult Film NYC. I think there's a ticket link. Mm -hmm. If I, I maybe I can give that to you. There's oh, some, yes. I'm sure it's floating around somewhere. Yeah. I'll make one sure of, I can find it. One of the other writers has been on this show mm -hmm. too, actually. I remember I saw their name and I was like, where do I know them from? Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't remember their name. I have to, oh yeah, I think I saw it somewhere. Whoever you are, we I remember <laughs> you. I'm sure I remember yeah. everybody. It was um, um oh, sorry. It's yeah. Eric. Eric Ratti. Love Eric. Uh, Eric's the best. Eric's so genuine and like very intentional about everything he does um very very cool very cool guy i'm excited that's like kind of the best part about putting up stuff is i get to meet all these people i'm really excited to talk yeah. and hang yeah yeah that's awesome it's, it truly is the best part is like and it, make, it makes it very rewarding as well it's like the relationship building aspects and like the building of uh like a collection of like collaborator collaborators um which is like the best it makes you feel less alone <laughs> absolutely yeah and it kind of makes everything feel more alive because as long as yeah. you keep meeting people that you want to work with you'll never be finished you'll never be like i'm out you know yeah definitely 
Well, I, you know, you know, I could talk all night, of course, but I have to, <laughs> I, have no, I, to get you. Uh, yeah. I have to go, um, I guess I have to go to sleep eventually. Oh, I was, I was wondering, and we don't, I mean, we don't have to include this in the recording if you don't want to, but oh, sure. where, where do you work? Oh, I work at a library, uh, at a college, but I guess I don't want to, in case it does go in the episode, I yeah. won't specify, <laughs> Okay. Um, but who, working who? at a library is great. It's much oh. better than tech. Yeah. Okay. I have actually always wondered like, oh, what would it be like? that's that kind of checks out um that's cool very nice well I think that's all the questions I had um yeah I guess end scene (laughs) cool um so then then, yeah of course yeah um yeah this is where I'll cut it off